Well, as you've learned from this series, the Philippians were proud citizens of Rome. They were unique in the Roman Empire in that they were a colony, and as such, they were all endowed with Roman citizenship, which brought incredible benefits in that day. They were also entitled to participate in Roman ceremonies and customs, and their Romanness shaped everything about their perspective. The Philippians are not alone in really taking hold of their ethnic and national citizenship. Ever since the rise of the nation-state, Christians have lived as citizens of one country, kingdom, province, or another. And it is a continual challenge for Christians to be good citizens of whatever nation they're a part of, while also being a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Sometimes it becomes hard for us to separate where does our nationality end and where does our loyalty to King Jesus take over. Oftentimes we find ourselves going along with whatever our nation does and we simply baptize it with Christian rhetoric. In the weeks after 9-11, some of y'all may recall, uh, tensions were, uh, emotions were high. I mean, everyone was keyed up. Everyone was flying American flags. For a few, few blessed months, Congress agreed on just about everything. Um, it, was, it was amazing time, right? Well, passions were hot. And in the Sunday right after 9-11... Uh, a, a pastor on the West Coast got up into his pulpit and he preached a, a message in which he said, I'm an American first and a Christian second. Let's bomb them back into the Stone Age. And after the service, someone said, someone up to challenge this pastor, uh, a Christian first, uh, American first, Christian second. And he, and he said, I'm in exactly what I said and I don't recant a single word of it. Oftentimes, when the pressure is turned on, we are given an opportunity to test ourselves. Where are my primary loyalties? Which cultural value is really driving my affections? Now, it's against this backdrop of, of citizenship that the letter to Philippians really takes hold. Because as Roman citizens or as American citizens, we have also been granted citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that has an ethic that is remarkably different than the ethic that drives the kingdoms of this world. In fact, in many respects, the ethics of the kingdom turn on their head the ethics of this world. Indeed, in the kingdom of God, it is those who serve who are the greatest. And it is the poor who are the richest, etc., etc. Now, in the kingdom of, the, uh, of heaven, in the kingdom of Christ, our defining element is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel shapes everything. Twice in verse 27 of our passage, the gospel is referenced. You're going to want to have your Bible open because we're going to, we're going to really exegete. This is a short passage 
but it's a really powerful passage. Uh, but twice in verse 27, the gospel is referenced. In the latter part of the verse, we hear of the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel, that's a noun. In other words, the gospel message has doctrinal content. There are truth declarations. There are propositions about reality that the gospel makes. And these truth statements then shape our understanding of reality. They shape our values and our ethics, which results in the earlier part of the verse, he makes reference to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. So the gospel is something that shapes our identity by its truth declarations, but then there's an ethic that is consistent with that. And so we are to live our lives in such a way that we manifest the truths of the gospel and make the gospel look glorious. The gospel shapes everything. In these in the five preceding sermons that we've preached thus far from this chapter, we've seen this. We've seen in our introduction how the gospel shaped Paul's self-understanding and how it took him from a place of needing to fight for his rights and asserting himself to seeing himself instead as a slave. Someone who lives at the behest and for the will of another. And how that gospel truth sets the stage for unity and partnership. And then in our second sermon, we saw how the gospel orients our perspectives of others. So that we see each other as co-heirs. In the third sermon, we saw how Paul understood that the gospel shapes his perspectives about his circumstances, his critics, by viewing it through the lens of Christ, the gospel shapes everything. And then, of course, as you know, in the last two weeks, we've seen that the gospel shaped Paul's understanding of life and death itself. And now in this passage, we're going to learn that the gospel promotes unity by calling us to solidarity as a display of the gospel in our society. That's a mouthful, so don't write it down. Okay? The gospel promotes unity by calling us to solidarity as a display of the gospel in our society. Okay, so before we extrapolate some points, I want to exegete this passage because it, it's, there's a lot of meat in here. Um, we, we, we look at these verses and, uh, and we go, wow. But sometimes when you really dig in in the Greek, you just see that it's just a treasure trove. For one thing, verses 27 to 30 is one sentence in Greek. All of it. And so whenever English translators have to turn this into English, you know, we have to have punctuation. Well, and, and when you put a period, that sort of communicates a, a transition of thought in the English language. Well, so... We're tempted to think that Paul was stopping his sentences and stuff. No, this is all one sentence in Greek. It's just we can't handle a, a ten-line sentence so in English to make it easier for us readers. We put commas and periods. But imagine this, one sentence. And the subject and focus of this entire sentence is the gospel of Christ. The focus in this is on the gospel. 
In fact, he begins, verse 27, by transitioning rather abruptly. The English that you see, the word is only. That's the first word of verse 27, only. So what he's just done is he's talked about himself, about how whether he lives or he dies, he's going to magnify Christ. And then he starts here, only let your manner of life. This only represents him putting up his hand as if he's saying, enough about me, enough about me. Let's talk about you. So now he's transitioning in this book from talking about his own circumstances to the Philippians. And so everything that Paul has been telling us has been by way of example. And now he's going to apply that same truth and principle to his audience. And so it's for us. And then in verse 27, he wants to stress the importance of the gospel. And so in the Greek, the sentence reads like something you would hear from Yoda. Okay, in the English, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the Greek, it says, of the gospel of Christ worthy may your life be. See how that sounds like Yoda might say it? I'm, I'm going to save you the voice. But still, the point is, the gospel of Christ is up front. Boom! Worthy let your life be. Okay. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come or, I, or I'm absent, I can hear about you. Okay, he wants to keep tabs on his people. And he wants to hear a good report. Now, what is it that he's wanting to hear? Well, in what follows are three things that he's going to hear if they are living their life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. There are three consequences then of living worthy of the gospel. First, we see that they will be standing firm in one spirit. Second, that they with one mind will be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And third, that they would not be frightened in anything by their opponents. So those three things are what Paul will hear if they are living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. One mind, one spirit, not afraid. These three things come together then and have the effect in verse 20, uh, 29 or 28 of producing a very clear sign that the opponents of the Philippians are not approved by God and therefore will be judged and destroyed. At the same time, that sign serves as a, as a signifier of God's commendation of them that they have been approved and will be saved. Then verse 29 answers the question, how is it that it's a sign? Or why is it that it's a sign of your salvation? And verse 29 tells us, because it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ to suffer for his sake. To suffer doesn't imply physical pain. In the Greek, it's a concept that means it's a situation that is unpleasant enough that it requires endurance. Think about how much of our life has lived in a circumstance that's unpleasant and requires endurance. And it's been granted to us for the sake of Christ. Think about that for just a moment. It's for Christ's sake that you have been granted the circumstance that you have. And this harkens back to what he said a few verses earlier, has it not? 
that all of his life is a display of the power and majesty and glory of Jesus. And so when you're in the circumstance that calls for endurance, it's because it is an opportunity that God has put you in to make Jesus look great. And so, in this passage then, we see live worthy of the gospel. I'll hear about it, and if you're living worthy, these three things will be produced which have the combined effect of being a sign that your opponents are not accepted by God, but that you are. And this is all for Christ's sake. Okay, so what does this have to do with anything, Ben? You said this was a rich passage. Well, I think that was kind of rich, but still, it gets better. This passage underscores the team effort it takes to be a Christian. So often in Western Christianity, we have this notion that it's just me and Jesus. We approach church as if it's this voluntaristic thing, and we just come, we show up, we serve at our whims, we highly individualize. If you're not meeting my needs, I'm going to go away. I'm not really worried about serving and contributing. I'm here to get. And that's true of of Christianity in the West. That's pretty much a descriptor of the church in the West. It's all privatized. We think that because it's personal, it's also private. And there is a difference. We fiddle around with our Christianity. We're half-hearted beings that per se we pursue our joy in Christ. But meanwhile, as soon as the next flashy thing comes along, ooh, 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 and we chase after it. And so we live these discontented tepid lives. The pursuit of your joy in Christ is serious business. And you cannot make it by yourself. The key thing that holds all these verses together is the sense of togetherness, the sense of solidarity that the Greek conveys. He wants them to remember That the key to keeping on, keeping on in the face of adversity is solidarity. You must come together. And how does he do this? Well, in this passage, we see three key points that he uses to make that. First, very simply, we have obligations to each other. Did you know that? We have obligations to each other. Second, we need each other. And third, our convictions are strengthened by shared experiences. Okay? We have obligations to each other. We need each other. And our convictions are strengthened by shared experiences. Okay, look with me at verse 27. We love talking about rights. Oh man, I can hardly look at Facebook without seeing all these, uh, with all, all, all this stuff from these social justice warriors about, you know, fighting for right, 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 rights. Ah! I'm going to assert myself and get what's mine, and you're going to give it rights. And citizenship carries rights. Now, 
I'll be honest, I don't, I don't think America does citizenship very well because there's really no right, special privileges. Rome did citizenship well. I mean, if you were a citizen of Rome, I mean, one of the immediate perks is you weren't allowed to be beat without being convicted. And that's a nice benefit, right? Um, you, you actually had the right to appeal a sentence. You were exempt from certain taxes. I mean, benefit had per- citizenship had perks. Here, we, we give citizenship benefits, except for the right to vote. Well, maybe they might even change that to anybody. So it's hard for us to grasp the significance of citizenship. But the key that we think about when we think of citizenship is more than simply my rights, my rights, my rights. Citizenship, especially in the Greco-Roman context, signified one's duty and place for the good of society. And even now, we still sort of hold to that meaning. We don't think in terms of someone being a good citizen if they're just a mountain man out in Alaska not bothering anybody. I mean, we're grateful that they're not a problem to society, but we wouldn't think of such a person as being a great citizen. What do we think of when we think of a good citizen? Someone who's positively contributing, someone who's participating in the process, someone who's doing good for the for their neighborhood or their or their or their fellow man or something like that. Citizenship is understood that we are part of a collective body. Now why am I bringing this up? Because that's what this passage does. You see in your Bible in verse 27 that that phrase, let your manner of life. That word right there is actually the word that means live as a citizen. Paulus Thuantes. He's not using the normal word that he says when he wants to tell people to live rightly. Whenever Paul wants to tell people to live moral lives in keeping with whatever, he tells them to walk in a manner. He uses a Hebrew metaphor, walk. You find it all over. But here is the only time where he uses the phrase, live as a citizen. So let your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel. Folks, you are citizens of the kingdom of God. And you, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, your membership in this community implies that you have a, an obligation to promote and seek out the public good. So, if we are called to be good citizens of the kingdom of God, That implies that we have obligations to one another. We can't just sit here as leeches, sucking the life out of other Christians and the church and wherever we go. I'm going to take and take and take until I've taken all I can and then I'll go to another church and take from them. We are called to seek the good of our brothers and sisters. How has God equipped you to serve where you are. Every single one of you has a story. 
Every single one of you has incredible talents and gifts. I'm amazed. The more I get to know each of you, I'm just stunned by by the beautiful cornucopia of experiences. And it's amazing. Have you considered how God might have prepared you to be a blessing to this assembly? You have obligations to one another to live well as a citizen. So, I encourage you, promote the unity of the church, promote the health of the church by striving to be a good citizen. Help other people when they need help. Promote the public good. So we have obligations to one another, not just because of our citizenship, but specifically because Christianity is not a solo effort. It is a team sport. And so that leads to the second point. We have obligations to each other primarily because we actively need each other. We do. We do. That may be the hardest selling point is to think that I actually need that person sitting across the aisle. You do. Think of the person in this church that you like the most. You need them. And they need you. Think of the person that you would be most happy to see walk out of here. You need them. And they need you. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Standing firm. Right there in verse 27. This is a military term that means to hold the line. Do you remember in Braveheart? where the English cavalry are storming across the field and the Scottish knights are, or the Scottish warriors are, are, are sitting there. And what's William Wallace saying? I mean, as the horses are thundering closer and closer. And what's he continuing to say to them? Hold! He has to wait until the timing is just right. We have to hold the line. Okay? That's a military concept. Second, striving side by side. That is a word that originally found use with the Greek phalanx. An incredibly ingenious method of fighting war in that day where the front line of soldiers would form a a wall of shields and the people, the rows behind them would, would have their long spears sticking through the openings and they would march forward in unison as one. And it was like a moving shield wall of pointy things. And it was remarkably effective. Remarkably. What Alexander did with the phalanx was incredible. But then the word evolved over the centuries and it became used in team athletics. But it still signifies the oneness of needing to coordinate the actions of a group as one. So that it's like a one... You know those, those birds... What are those little birds that they'll fly in such a mass that, that they'll, they'll make sudden turns in the sky and it's hundreds of little birds, but they move as one. And so it's this coordinated, beautiful thing. 
military language. Verse 28, not frightened in anything. Not frightened. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. To find out what it means, we have to look at classic Greek literature. And it refers to an inexperienced war horse being startled by what happens on a battlefield and thereby reacting typically to the detriment of the rider. Okay? So repeatedly here, Paul uses words that are pulled straight from the battlefield. So it's no exaggeration to say your survival, as Paul is trying to say, depends upon a coordinated team effort. Some of you have seen those uh, National Geographic channel shows where, where, the chi- where the cheetah is hunting down gazelles. And what does the cheetah always try to do? Isolate the weak. It doesn't charge headlong into the mass of, 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 of animals because that's just, a, uh, that's just a thorn bush of horns and hooves. It isolates out the weak. And the weak that has been isolated is overcome. It's the same thing with the devil. He seeks someone to devour. He's a roaring lion. He wants to isolate you. We must act in such a way that we provide a united, concentrated line of defense, not yielding the ground. Forward marching with spears bristling as we face the onslaughts of the devil. Contending side by side. Souls and lives are literally at stake. And what all too often happens is we pull away precisely when we need to be pushing in. I hear people, they're struggling. They may be struggling in their marriage or whatever. And instead of surrounding themselves by people who actually care about marriage, they pull away and they surround themselves with worldlings who couldn't care less what you do as long as you're happy. People struggle with getting rid of hurts and feeling, and feeling upset by, the, by what's happened in their lives. And instead of drawing closer to God, they pull away. You don't grow closer to God by taking a break from God. So many kids join the military, go to college, and they're not reasoned out of the faith. They simply are set adrift. If you get isolated you will fall. We need each other. And the image that Paul gives us here of the phalanx is so important because that front row was the row that was protecting the lives of everybody else. God in his wisdom appoints people to go through difficult times in different seasons. You may be hurting But the person over there may be going through a time where they are incredibly blessed. When we are strong, that is when we need to take over for those who are weak and help them out. So that when we are weak, someone else who's doing well can help us out. We need each other. And that concentrated effort makes the gospel of Christ look glorious. So... 
If you think that all this is just unnecessary, nice but unnecessary, that, oh, just me and my Bible and Jesus are going to make it, please don't delude yourself. Every metaphor that Paul uses here is one that underscores the desperate, dire situation you're in. You are in war. And the devil takes no prisoners. And if you get off by yourself, you're a goner. Stay with us. We need you on the line, all right? And we will help each other. And together, we will advance this church right to where God wants us to be. So remember, you are important. You are important. Do not think for a moment that your gifts and your talents are not necessary here. God has seen fit to put you here. You have obligations to us and we need you. You may be the only one who can, who can defend this corner of the advance. You are important. Every man, woman, and child in this room is important to this church. You are precious. And it is only to our detriment if we think you're not. There are no unnecessary people here. We need you. And what we also need is for you to know that everyone else is important too. So, if we stand firm in one spirit, fighting side by side, not being afraid, we can advance the cause. So we have obligations to one another. We need one another. But lastly, our convictions are strengthened. The very confidence we have in the truths we profess are strengthened through our shared experiences. I remember in high school going for two-a-days in anticipation of football season, and it was miserable. I hated two-a-days. I hated it worse than I hated basic training. At least basic training I was getting paid for, you know? And, and, uh, but those, that shared misery bonded us. And it made a team. Our shared experiences will have the same. Think about this. There are people in this church that you've known for a long, long time. And you've had lots of shared experiences with them. Some of them wonderful, some of them not. But those shared experiences have drawn you closer. The same is true when those experiences are grounded in the truths we profess. Okay, verse 27 speaks of contending for the faith of the gospel. And this refers to our doctrinal content. There are things we believe are true about the world, about who God is, who humankind is, and how we can relate to God and be saved. We believe there are truths about how human beings are to relate, that there is good, there is wrong, there is right, there is bad, there's... Sorry, I mixed my metaphor. Anyway... There's truth, and we must contend for that. Now, notice this right here. This is where I'm trying to get to the, the shared convictions. Uh, in verse 20, uh, 27, or, or 28, it has this interesting clause here. A after talking about not being frightened by anything by your opponents, it says in the ESV, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So question, 
How is it that us being living worthy of the gospel, us fighting with unity, standing side by side, contending, not being afraid, how is it that they have an understanding that they are going to be destroyed and that we're going to be saved? Well, actually, in this particular case, the ESV doesn't translate it very well. The New American Standard Version, the, the Holman Christian Standard Version, and the, uh, the New English Translation get a lot closer to the Greek when it says, uh, after, after talking about not being afraid, it says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. In other words, we have God's book, His revealed will, which tells us certain things, which provides the interpretive lens by which we're able to understand reality. And we have the words of Jesus, among others, saying that if they have hated me, they will hate you. And we have over and over God's words telling us that God vindicates His people and God will punish those who persecute His people. We just finished reading up Revelation in, in family worship, and I'm telling you, look at it. Over and over and over it says that judgment comes because of what they have done to his people. God cares about his people. Now, this is a conviction we have, that God cares for his people. And we have God's word that he vindicates his people and that he punishes those who, who harm his people. And so this is a time where the sign, where our response in the face of adversity is a sign for us that we are approved and that they are not. It's a sign for us concerning them, concerning us. You see it all the time in the Old Testament. These prophets will, will make a proclamation against a foreign power, condemning them in some way. But yet these nations never received the message. The message was about those pagan nations for the people of God. The people of God received the message as a heads up. Hey, these people that are harming you, they're going to get it. Okay? So it's a message concerning them, but it's a message to you. So as the world opposes us, as circumstances conspire, and as the the, the anti-us forces of the world conspire to try to put pressure on us, if we respond in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, we are reminded that this is a sign that the world stands condemned already and that God's people will be vindicated. And now as we experience that, we are encouraged Think about it. When someone goes out onto the mission field and testifies to, to some sort of persecution and standing up under it, there's encouragement because we're reminded that this was promised and we're also reminded that the outcome is promised. Shared experiences draw us closer and they strengthen our convictions. Just yesterday I read a friend of mine, uh, he's a missionary to, to, uh, to, to the bush surrounding Papua New Guinea. And they're back here in the States. 
and on their furlough. And they've had furlough several times over the years. You know, they're back here raising support, you know, seeing their host churches, whatever. And, and, and as it turns out, his wife was able to deliver their baby in, in a nice U.S. facility. And off and on during this time, she's been having these weird little health episodes. Just, it would come and go, nothing major. Didn't, they didn't think anything of it. Well, the time has come for them to depart back to New Guinea. And in the eyes of the world, as luck would have it, the bureaucrats over on that end messed up their visa paperwork. And their visa paperwork keeps getting lost in the shuffle and whatever. And so they've been delayed several months going back. And these health episodes have kept on. And so they just found out Friday that she has leukemia. Now, the doctors believe it's early enough that they can do something about it. But just imagine what it would have happened if those Papua New Guinean bureaucrats had done their job rightly the first time. They would be back there, knee-deep in the bush, and it may have been a whole different story, huh? You see, we have a worldview and a lens that tells us nothing happens by chance. And even the frustrating, trying circumstances we go to are going to be used by God for our vindication. And as we experience them together, the bond of faith, our confidence in God's word, is self-strengthened. So be a good citizen. Live life with us. We need you. We need you. It may be your time to hold the shield. It may be your time to hold the spear. Or maybe it's your time for some R&R in the back. Whatever. We need you. You are not, you are not unimportant to us. And so we need you because there's going to come the time when I can't do it. Okay? Know that the ethic of the gospel is one of service. Of standing up in the face of adversity, pursuing what is right. Oh, brothers and sisters, we serve a great God who has drawn us together for great purposes. And if we stand together. The gates of hell itself cannot prevail against us. Will we? Will we stand together as one? Let's pray.